Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Pragmatic Investor. My guest today is Kevin Erdman, a fellow Substack writer and the author of two very interesting books on real estate. I recently stumbled onto Kevin's Substack and was captivated by his unique take on the real estate market and the housing sector. Housing is an incredibly important sector when it comes to the economy. In terms of macroeconomics, it can tell us a great deal about business cycles. Since the 2008 financial crisis, it seems like everyone is expecting a housing bust every other year. However, Kevin has a very different, refreshing and unique perspective on the housing market. The way he sees it, there's a secular undersupply in the housing market, which will lead to a secular bullish market. Kevin actually has quite a positive outlook for the coming years. Kevin also has a pretty unique perspective on monetary policy and the Federal Reserve, so we also spent some time talking about this. In today's conversation, we covered everything to do with real estate, the housing market, and also monetary policy and the Federal Reserve. To wrap up, Kevin gave us some pretty actionable investment ideas as to how investors can profit from housing and real estate. I really enjoyed this conversation with Kevin. He's incredibly knowledgeable when it comes to the housing market, and he has a pretty unique perspective. If you haven't already, go ahead and check out Kevin's Substack. A link will be provided on the description. And also go and check out his books on real estate. As always, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Welcome to the show, Kevin Erdman. Thank you for coming. Uh, Yeah, thanks for having me. All right. For anyone who isn't familiar with your work, just... Uh, let everyone know what you're doing, what your background is, and yeah, just introduce yourself to everyone. Uh, yeah, uh, I, I I substack at uh, the Erdman Housing Tracker, which is uh, kevinerdman.substack.com. In uh, my background, I was just a small businessman, um, and uh, uh, about it's been about eight years ago now. I I just blogged. Uh, uh, on the side uh, about sort of <clears throat> anything I was thinking about, but uh, but frequently about investing, and uh, um, intended to spend a couple weeks studying uh, the housing market for housing investment in the housing area, and just accidentally sort of discovered that everything, all the conventional wisdom about mm-hmm. the the financial crisis was wrong. Um, and, uh, you know, just uh, uh, the, the credit data, for instance, doesn't really, like you don't really see uh, like a decline in the average income of homeowners during during that boom period. You don't see um, a decline in the average credit score of uh, new mortgages, that sort of thing. Uh, all these things that were seem to be generate, you know, conventional wisdom was that we had these generational de- uh, defining changes in standards. Uh, just don't show up in the data really at all. Frequently, they go the opposite direction. Um, and so, so a brief study to see uh, whether I should invest in a home builder sort of turned into months and years. Uh, at, at the old blog, I ended up with, I think, 350 or something posts about housing. Um, and eventually, it was probably six months into it before I really realized all these mysteries, all these disconnections were uh basically explained by a supply problem mm-hmm. uh, that uh, so the reason I'm here the reason I'm still out here talking about this and talking to you today is really the nub of my um, 
uh, sort of insight is that even in 2005, we had really a shortage, a shortage of housing is in the United mm -hmm. States is what was driving everything that was happening. And since conventional wisdom, including up to policymakers and Federal Reserve officials was that we had this uh, oversupply of housing that that you know led to uh, necessary collapse and housing starts and all that sort of stuff. Um, since that was conventional wisdom, it was it was important <laughs> that we had actually had a shortage. And so I really just spent the the last eight years becoming an accidental housing market expert uh, and just following my nose down that path. Eventually, I was a, a visiting fellow at the Mercatus Center and put out a couple books and several papers uh, while I was there. And I've sort of meandered to the Substack in the meantime. Um, and so the two books are called Shut Out, uh, which is really a book about the core problem and all the ways that the lack of housing affects the American economy. And then the book Building from the Ground Up is more of a timeline of the boom and bust in the 2000s mm -hmm. uh, and how you would reimagine the things that were happening, the policy decisions that were made um, from this new um, point of view of, you know, of this upside down um, idea of what was happening mm -hmm. in the housing market. And, that, and, and then here I am today. <laughs> Absolutely. A very, very interesting, very nice origin story. I like how you just kind of fell into that rabbit hole of the uh, housing market. I feel like that's often how you you get the start in in a lot of in a lot of ways. That's kind of how I started with economics. Just you end up stumbling on a blog or something and just just can't stop reading and fall into that rabbit hole. But you mentioned uh, some of your previous books, and that's actually where I wanted to start because. I haven't had a chance to read the book yet, but I did go through the summary of uh, Building from the Ground Up, Reclaiming the American Housing Boom, which is your most recent book, right, which came out in 2022, I believe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I think it's very interesting. You basically kind of like you've said, you have a kind of a contrarian view, let's say, uh, kind of defying a lot of the conventional wisdom. So I want to go through a couple of the points maybe just to uh Get your get your point of view, and if you could develop a little bit on some of these uh, points. For example, you say, for example, that there is little reason to blame the housing boom on loose monetary policy or excessive stimulus, which of course goes against uh, what a lot of people would think. So, what exactly uh, does that mean? Could you elaborate a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think you probably a starting point there uh, is with uh, the the school the. Monetary school of thought, uh, which is the um, the market monetarists, mm -hmm. uh, uh, which uh, Scott Sumner. I've done a bit of work at Mercatus with Scott Sumner, um, who's one of the big proponents of that. And, and I think that's really sort of what opened the door to me to view housing a different way. Was that uh, the market monetarist point of view is uh, that uh, nominal GDP growth is really the most um, accurate way to describe the stance of monetary policy. Um, mm -hmm. uh, inflation can be affected by supply conditions, which obviously we've seen uh, like never before with the COVID um, uh, interruption. And um, interest rates are, are very confused. Uh, I, I think one of the great um, mm -hmm. 
uh, sort of inflictions on the American investor is the way that the uh, Federal Reserve gives the impression that they control interest rates and that uh, and that through that control they uh, manipulate mm -hmm. the economy. Um, I think it was Milton Friedman who uh, Sumner uh, frequently will um, cite that said, you know, low interest rates today are generally a sign of um, yesterday's tight monetary policy. And effectively, I think that's what was where we were in the 2000s. Um, inflation was, was never particularly high. Um, mm -hmm. nom nominal GDP growth. Um, Scott, uh, I, I, Scott Sumner has sort of lowered his estimate of, of our sort of run rate neutral nominal GDP growth mm -hmm. over time. Um, I, I still think about a 5% nominal growth rate is reasonable and, and should be considered basically neutral. Um, mm -hmm. You know, 2004 and five, we might've hit 6% and change. Um, and by 2006 and seven, we were down into the fours, you know, four plus something. And um, uh, that's a, a bit above even my target, but it's, it's lower than any expansion since World War II had been. So um, uh, there's really no, reason to uh, accept for low interest rates to claim that the uh, Federal Reserve is particularly loose. And then also coming out of my work uh, where I'm pointing to this shortage in housing, actually, if you disaggregate the CPI uh, and mm -hmm. pull, uh, pull lint inflation out of it, which I've been doing for, for years, uh, not I, a lot of people have been choosing and picking CPIs uh, through the COVID period. I, I've always deferred to a non-shelter CPI target because most of the shelter component is rent and most of the rental value that they're measuring is the estimated rental value of owned homes. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and you know, the little old lady in suburban San Francisco that paid off her home in 1996 uh, just doesn't even know that the rental value on her home is... It, it, it is a true measure of cost of living that the rental value of her home is going up five or six percent a year. She doesn't right. know that. It certainly doesn't affect mm -hmm. her spending, and it should have nothing to do with how we conceive of cyclical monetary policy decisions. Mm -hmm. So I prefer to just take shelter out of it um, mm -hmm. and and look at. And if you do that, you know, really since 1990, the mid 90s, uh, mm -hmm. even going back further uh, to a certain extent, but it's certainly by uh, since the mid '90s, the rent component, the shelter component, has averaged something like a percent plus excess every year. Mm -hmm. So that if you take it out, uh, you know, even based on the Fed's uh, two percent inflation target, we've been perennially below that target uh, for all of these, you know, thirty odd years. Mm -hmm. uh, there's just no reason to to claim the Fed has really ever been loose we can argue about some of the you know a few months here during the covid uh, uh thing uh, up or mm -hmm. down but certainly from the mid 90s to uh to covid there's there's really not a single quarter where you could claim that they were loo loose at all let alone loose to an extent that you create this generation defining uh, bubble mm -hmm. yeah, that's very interesting and like i said obviously it's something that a lot of people would uh, feel surprised to, to hear, right, that the Fed has actually been too loose when the common narrative is that they've been just way too tight and all these things. Now, so you also say that 
And I'm reading here from the summary, the Federal Reserve guided the market to a soft landing by 2007. 2008 should have been a year of recovery, but by the time the soft landing came, the Fed became convinced of the myth of housing oversupply and ignored stark evidence of a coming crisis. So I kind of wanted to develop a little bit more then, if then let's say that the Fed wasn't exactly to blame uh, for this, uh, crisis. What exactly happened with the um, with the housing crisis? What uh, what happened in two thousand and seven, two thousand and eight to lead to that collapse? Let's say. I mean, I would say to a certain extent they. Uh, I blame them less than I used to, but I, to a certain extent they are to blame for right. the crisis. Um, right. But the but but the normal uh, pattern of blame is that they created that they made all their mistakes in two thousand five. And mm-hmm. then by 2008, there was nothing we could do but let that unwind. We'd had a bubble, and so you had it. Eventually, it had to bust, mm-hmm. uh, and so it sort of let them off the hook. Any bad, uh, the worst any policy decision went is in 2007, 8, and 9. The better, the more people liked it because it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the bigger the crisis, the more people confirmed. The more it confirmed for everyone that oh, see, we we knew we'd overdone it in 2005, and we had, mm-hmm. we had this coming all along. And so really, to me, that's the crux of the crisis is that crisis really became the popular stance, even if nobody would put it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, explicitly, you can see that reaction if I say suggest that lending standards shouldn't have been tightened or the Fed should have lowered interest rates sooner. Mm-hmm. Uh, you commonly get almost an angry reaction of, oh, you'd take us back to that time, the, the Wild West of 2005. Sure, you know. Um, mm-hmm. So people really did sort of demand this, uh, uh, that, that outcome. Um, and you can see what the, one of the key moments that I go into in my work is the, the every year at the end of August, the Fed goes to Jackson Hole for this annual um, sort of conference uh, uh, outing. And that year they had John Taylor, who famous for the Taylor rule and is always right. a bit, uh, frequent quick mm-hmm. critic of, of call, saying that they're too loose and blaming him for the housing bubble. And uh, Ed Lemer, who's an a economist from UCLA, uh, who both addressed housing, um, Taylor with the conventional sort of, you were too low for too long and it led to a million too many houses. And uh, of course, by the time he gave that speech, actual housing starts had already declined more than enough to make up for any of that. Uh, but but everyone was so wedded to the story that, that, that uh, uh, nobody was about to change their tune. Um, mm-hmm. And then Ed Lemer, who actually has a great, uh, it's a commonly cited paper, it's called Housing is the Business Cycle. And he has this, the, it, it, it's, a, it's a very useful concept. It actually is, um, the sort of thing the Fed should use to guide it, which he, he basically said uh, the how that the housing market is a, a um, leading indicator for the business mm. cycle, uh, but it leads in terms. It's important in terms of production. It's important in terms of employment, and so you're looking at housing starts and mm-hmm. home sales, and when that's declining, you you better watch out a recession's coming. And and as you hit a recession, that's going to be the first thing that recovers. And don't worry about prices. Prices don't really ever go down that much. And if they do, it sort of lags. Uh, but unfortunately, even though he came with the the exact story they needed to hear, he was he was caught up in this wave of conventional wisdom and he just couldn't he couldn't imagine that at the moment he was speaking 
we've gone from having uh, a shortage of housing to having a very moderate little building boom, but well mm-hmm. back into having a shortage. And um, he just couldn't imagine that uh, that expanding that that a recovery in housing starts could possibly be part of the reaction function that the Fed would be working on. So he he effectively disowns his own uh, system by you know sort of just weakly claiming that that there were so many houses that that this time was different than all the previous times and, and housing starts had to go down for another couple couple years before they could recover. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's the blueprint the Fed is following as we're going into 2008 and nine. They should have really been um, looking to stimulate the economy. Um, they should have been looking for a recovery in housing starts. And as I outlined in Building from the Ground Up, meeting to meeting to meeting, you see them um, at first, they didn't. They didn't uh, um, uh, forecast a, a big decline in housing starts. They would just lower their forecasts each each meeting. To mm-hmm. they, they would say, okay, here's where the new bottom is, and then the next meeting, go, okay, the bottom's a little lower, but now it's the bottom. Um, mm-hmm. And you and you can see them uh, slowly lose their uh, grip on what the 2005 Fed would have said, which would have been to get housing starts to recover once they were that deeply, you know, by late mm. 2007, they were down 50 plus percent. Um, and you can see them slowly as the meeting after meeting, the housing starts, and new home sales don't meet their forecasts. They start believing the critics, mm-hmm. believing that really we'd had too, too many houses to begin with. So the the steeper housing starts decline, the more their forecast starts leading the decline. And they start say by the end of 2007, they say, oh, by the end of 2008, starts are gonna be much lower than they are now. Um, and then they'll recover. So the Fed really became pro-cyclical. Um, mm-hmm. And all of that was, uh, uh, could have been, I think, um, reversible. I, I think, you know, they, they've been, too tight going into recessions a dozen times since World War II. It, it, that wouldn't lead to a crisis in itself. I've increasingly come to the conclusion that what really sort of kicked crisis into gear was uh, lending standards tightening, mostly through control of the FHA and, and Freddie uh, Mac and Fannie Mae, uh, you know, uh, loosely over the course of early 2008, eventually directly through the conservatorship when the government took them over in August of 2008. Um, There's Mm -hmm. just a sharp multi-sigma tightening of lending, unprecedented tightening of lending over the course of that year. And so partly what led to me, my substack and the model I use of the substack is that I was able to, one of the models I use to look at home prices uh, across the country was that I was able to actually see the shadow of that uh, tightening. I could see the effect that had had on home prices in credit-constrained neighborhoods across mm-hmm. the country, cities that had bubbles, cities that didn't have bubbles, cities that will never have bubbles, every kind of city, um, you know, Texas cities, California cities, uh, the low end dropped measurably by double-digit uh, percentages over the course of 2008 and 2009 as that credit tightening hits. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, it's the untold story of the crisis that really we just imposed this, we imposed a wealth shock that was highly regressive mm-hmm. through 
uh, repressive credit policies that are still in place. Um, and, and you can, you, it, it's, it's such, you know, it, it's funny because there's a thousand papers that are, you know, uh, doing a bunch of statistical mm -hmm. regressions to find that, oh, oh, we found that, you know, some banking rule made a 3% difference in home prices and said, ah, that's what, that's what caused the bubble. And, you know, this is, is at my model of the Substack, I attribute 20% of the drop of the average home to these mm -hmm. tightened lending standards. That's the average home, the high-end home that doesn't need credit or still uh, gets credit, it had no effect. The bottom end, you're talking 40% drop. Mm -hmm. And it's just clear as day throughout the country, that tightening of credit was really part of our communal insistence on crisis and, and uh, wealth uh, destruction mm -hmm. um, that really is the crisis. It, it's, but it's by and it's by far the most popular part of the crisis that mm -hmm. you in most in most um, audiences I would be laughed out of the room for suggesting that uh, that you know we go back to two thousand five lending standards in any way at all. Mm -hmm. um, but you can see it it, it sucked five trillion dollars out of working class American uh, balance sheets. Mm -hmm. uh, it's very it's very interesting that kind of idea, I guess, of that self fulfilling prophecy, right? Everyone everyone wants that crisis, and you know, eventually they get it. Now I want to take this now into the present to twenty twenty three, because of course you know what has happened with housing. Of course we had COVID, all that stimulus, uh, house prices shot up. And everyone's kind of since then, I guess, you know, fear sells and, you know, it's always going to be the next housing crisis. And, you know, people were expecting that with such high interest rates that home prices would really come down. Uh, it hasn't really happened. And, you know, obviously there's a lot of uh, reasons for this, like, I don't know, inventories have been mentioned. So I just wanted to know what is kind of your take on what's happening with housing right now? Yeah. So one of the sort of foundational ways that I've, that I sorry I came to it empirically, but sort of then it fits into my model about how all this is working. Is that I really just attribute, and again, you can you can to the extent that we have rent rent data available, you can you can see it working out in the data. Really, everything about housing is coming through rental value. That rental rental values have been going up for the better part of at least thirty years, uh, and you know since the really from World War II to the mid '70s, we were we were truly in a building boom sort of era, mm -hmm. and that was keeping rents down. That was keeping home prices moderate, and so um, so up through the mid '70s, something like uh, nine percent, maybe eight percent of um, of uh, GDP was went to to rental value, including the rental mm -hmm. value of owned homes. But you know. Sort of taking the entire stock of homes, what what would they rent for if we were writing ourselves checks each month? Right, something like eight percent of the of G. I should have, I always should look this up before I sit down for interviews, but I think it was eight percent. Um, mm -hmm. And then you know you can see the the residential whether you're looking at housing starts per capita or residential investment as a percent of GDP, whatever measure you want to look at, <clears throat> starting in the early '80s, that all starts to to fall, you know, in the seventies, you've got, you can, you can see just manufactured home drops off a uh, manufactured home shipments drop off a cliff because of basically regulatory capture of the home, the stiff built home builders that basically got it regulated out of existence. Apartment uh, units, we were building them, uh, you know, um, 
four or five units per thousand uh, residents in the uh, in the um, 70s, and then it drops to just nothing after that. Uh, you know, we're we're for the last decade, we've uh, or for the last few years, we've basically been sort of hitting that. Uh, sort of national cap of how many apartments, you know, it's very much a regulatory limit on how many apartments we can build. And we've just sort of been bumping up against that for years now. Um, and so uh, we're in the midst of, you know, basically over the course of the 20th century, we sort of put all these local land use regulations in place that just make it too hard to build housing, especially multi-unit. And so over the last 50 years, rents have been slowly going up. You know, the, our, our real rent, our real consumption of housing, the actual like size and value of the houses we live in has actually been growing at a slower pace than our incomes and our other spending has been uh, for in real terms for 50 years. Uh, rent Rents have been going up due to rent inflation. So mm -hmm. <clears throat> now we're up to something like 12% of GDP goes to rent. And if you compare right. today to the 70s, um, that again, that's that's not because we are living in houses that are 50% larger compared to our incomes. Uh, mm -hmm. house, uh, up until the 2000s, the houses were sort of getting bigger and nicer, but just at a slower pace than income. Since then, real housing consumption's flatlined since the Great Recession. Um, but uh, cumulative rent inflation is something like 60% over that period. So rents explain everything that's happening, including the the um, the 2000s boom. Sorry, my my, <laughs> my answer is getting probably much longer than you than you wanted. But all right, please um, go on. <laughs> but partly, what happens is when you have a, a secular problem mm -hmm. where something is is just getting more expensive. Uh, year after year after year after year, and there's this, you know, this is an extreme process. We're talking sixty. We're talking sixty percent cumulative uh, inflation on on mm -hmm. rents compared to other goods and services. This is an extreme problem. Right. Um, but what happens is housing is a cyclical market, and so as we're climbing that sixty percent hill, we're doing this as we're climbing it. So what mm -hmm. happens is every time we're at a cyclical peak, everyone says, ah. It's the cycles that's the problem. Look, housing is more expensive than ever before. It's this mm -hmm. cycle that we're in. Let's kill the cycle and we'll solve the problem. And you just keep you keep falling to ever higher cyclical lows because you're mm -hmm. on this ever you're on this uh, escalator to ever higher rents. Um, and and so again, as you mentioned, now we're back up to the top of the of the cycle, and everyone, uh, oh, here we are. We have even a bigger cycle than we had before. We have mm -hmm. to stop the cycle, but it, it's all just because the cycles are on an escalator. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, back to, so one of my sort of fundamental sort of ways to think about this is that uh, rents rise at more than a one-to-one -one ratio with, or, or prices rise at more than a one-to-one -one ratio with rents, basically in all contexts. If you compare the low end of, of a city to the high end, uh, the price to rent ratios would be higher where the rents are higher in that city. If you compare Dallas to LA, price to rent ratios are higher in LA. If you compare 1975 US to 2023 US, price to rent ratios are higher today than they were then because the rents are higher. Because of rent inflation, because those higher rents are land rents, they're just monopoly uh, mm -hmm. uh, value. Um, right. And so there's no depreciation with that extra rent. There's no, it's 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 free money. So it, it gets bid up to a higher value. Um, 
And so if you just model the American housing market to rising rents with a with say a hundred and say a one point five uh, um, ratio of price price to rents as those rents are rising up, um, you can very easily uh, um, explain all the, the everything that's happening in home values with rising rents. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's effectively what's happened. Uh, I have some Substack posts where I show, you know, you can model it. Zillow has rents down to the zip code level, you know, back to 2015. And you can, you know, from 2015 to, to 2019, uh, rents were rising, at, uh, uh, real rents basically were rising at like 2% plus more than regular generalized inflation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so prices were rising you know, at 150% of that clip, and it all just rises right together for four years leading up to COVID. Then general inflation spiked during COVID. And if you use Zillow uh, for rents, rents spiked during that period at exactly the same pace, plus uh, plus a little more than 2%. Mm-hmm. Um, and prices rose along with it at CPI general inflation plus two percent times one point five. It all it all just moves very closely together. There's very small amount of the deviation between prices and rents that uh, that, that you could attribute to say low interest rates in 2021, 2000, uh, early 2022. Um, so yeah, I, it's all a supply now. So we have this uh, general inflation spike that was that was temporary that that happened mm-hmm. and it was over it's not going to reverse because the right. fed has done an excellent job this time around um mm-hmm. but everything in the housing market is just uh 90% of what's happening in home values can be explained by that rent spike a combination of that rent spike and the very systematic behavior that happens in uh housing markets that starts with rent being higher than mm-hmm. general inflation every year year after year after year mm-hmm. Right. So if I'm understanding correctly, kind of part of your underlying thesis is that there's basically kind of a, a secular shortage in housing, right? And that, that can be yeah. partly attributed maybe to regulatory constraints that we put on exactly. building, yeah. for example. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So of course everyone agrees that homes are too expensive and mm-hmm. that inevitably there needs to be a reversal. And I would agree with that. It's just not gonna it's we don't have any. We 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 knocked millions of people out of the credit market in 2008, and we didn't let them back in. So yeah, I say you can only cut your leg off once. So we we can't do that again. So we can't we can't cyclically cut 20% off the value of American housing because uh, we, we those people are already can't get mortgages, um, mm-hmm. and so there is really no cyclical way to. Um, to lower prices, the the way that we, the only way to to make housing costs reasonable again is building, 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 building. So, and, and mm-hmm. you can't you can't build enough new housing in a single year to reverse sixty uh, percent rent inflation of the half of a century. It's just going to be a long, drawn out process. So that's why I'm very um, bullish on the home builders because they're sort of in a no lose situation. Either prices are going to continue. To uh, to rise unusually because rents are going to keep moving above uh, general inflation, or they're going to be very busy building millions and millions of homes uh, that are desperately needed that mm-hmm. slowly will bring down rents so that maybe twenty years from now we can look back and say, hey, we've gotten housing costs under control. Mm-hmm. 
Right, of course, that's a very compelling uh, long-term bullish uh, thesis, of course, on housing. Like you say, the home builders. Zooming in, though, like right now, as we said before, during, uh, um, you know, there's that cyclicality. Are we near that top potentially? Because you know, we've definitely over the last uh, couple of days, we've got some uh, housing data that you could argue is weak. Uh, I recently saw uh, David Rosenberg on Twitter posting the fact that um, new single family um, median sale prices uh, have fallen by 18% year on year in October. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, we're in a very interesting situation with uh, with housing, with new home prices and housing. Um, Partly what happened is that part of that spike in in rent inflation and general inflation was, you know, these these supply chain related, um, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, COVID related supply chain issues. And really, uh, you know, from mid to or late 2020 till late 2021, what you happened, there was a bit of a spike in demand, but if effectively what happened is that the home builders uh, were, were sort of capped at capacity by these, these right. sort of, um, you, know, you know, I've never quite put my finger on like what exactly what still needs to be healed, you know, but they're just always waiting, like windows are six months behind or whatever. They're just always waiting on some, mm-hmm. um, some, some portion of the supply chain to get a house to, to completion. And so really what happened, it really was a unique situation in the history of American home building markets in that uh, there was this bit of a a moderate rise in demand. So basically all of the finished inventory got bought up. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then then all the uh, uh, inventory under construction got bought up. And then the demand sort of went to queuing. So for for. 80 years, it's taken about uh, seven months to build a, a single family home. Occasionally that spikes upward because like in 2007 and eight, that there was this demand crash and they were actually just stuck with houses they couldn't get rid of. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this case, uh, we actually had um, average uh, construction times spike because they just mm-hmm. couldn't get the windows in to finish the project. So. Right. So what happens is now people start buying a spot in the queue, right? So now it's taken eight, nine, to, it eventually takes, it's gets up to 10 months to build a house that for decades has taken seven months plus or minus a couple of weeks without fail, except for the occasional uh, demand shock. Uh, and so basically for a while there, what you had was this deal where the, where, you know, people wanted to make sure they had a place in, in the queue. And mm-hmm. so they were willing to pay more for it. And the home builders are basically making this negotiation between the suppliers and the clients. Of we're going to overcharge the client by, uh, you know, by 15% and put them in the queue. And, you know, if we have to pay five or 10% more for supplies to get ourselves higher in the queue, to get that house to them faster, get it out of our inventory We'll pay a little extra. So everything gets elevated during that time. This has never happened, as far as I can tell, ever in the history of mm-hmm. the American housing market to have a national supply crunch like this. Mm-hmm. Um, so the new home builders had this, this weird period where, where people are paying a, um, a premium to be stuck in line. Right. Um, 
And so, you know, about the time that, you know, probably rising uh, mortgage rates had a little bit to do with sort of that, um, that coming down off that. Um, mm -hmm. But in a lot of ways, that was sort of, uh, I, I think that was going to sort of um, outlet, you know, eventually that, that by the time interest rates were high, that was already sort of the, the queue wasn't going to keep getting longer. People had a limit to how much of a premium they were willing to pay and how much they were willing to wait. And so all of this has been slowly sort of unwinding over the last year to 18 months. And so we had this weird situation where um, in 2008 and nine, you have a demand shock that caused, you know, uh, housing starts have been declining since 2006. <clears throat> and then eventually it works its way into prices um, mm -hmm. because the demand shock got too deep but we shouldn't have had that demand shock and then you get this it, it, together with the with these credit regulations i talked about you get right. these deep 25 30 percent declines in price that all have to do with sucking demand out of the out of a market that was that was actually operating normally now mm -hmm. we have we actually have the situation that some people imagine we had in 2000 before 2008 we actually did have a sort of price boom that had to do with uh, inability to to meet demand, mm -hmm. um, but this is it's all like a negotiation between the builders and the and the customers. So um, so new homes really did have to um, come down in prices, sort of in a way that existing homes didn't necessarily, because you know mm -hmm. it's sort of uh, there's an interaction between those markets, but, you know, but the home builders are the ones that know that their supply costs are going to go down eventually and they're sort of managing themselves. So because of the, the risk of that and the trouble of it, they were getting excess margins through this period of time. And now we're just seeing a reversal of all that back to normal. So, mm -hmm. um, so their costs are going down. The, the, we're almost back to probably within the next three to six months, we'll be back to that seven month um, time frame. For building, uh, and they're just they're just retreating back to a normal uh, cost and, and revenue situation, and mm -hmm. so that required price relative prices of new homes to to decline ten percent or more. Um, mm -hmm. So it's the funny thing is it's probably this you know in some ways the steepest sort of uh, initial decline in prices. Uh, that that you would see looking back historically at what happens with housing prices, but it's but it's not really a cyclically dangerous situation. Their, their margins are fine. Um, they're, they're probably going to be growing going forward. Um, and, and so it was really just unwinding this deal they had with the people in the cube. Um, so um, one of the things that's happening then because of the interest rate environment also uh, you know, builders don't want to just cut their menu price 15%. That looks bad. It's going to maybe create cancellations of, of previous mm -hmm. buyers that are sitting on a So they're going to come back and renegotiate the price down. So they try to fill that gap with incentives. Mm -hmm. um, so they'll, they'll keep the, the uh, um, stated price, you know, as close to, to the peak as they can. And then they'll give you free upgrades in the kitchen and, you know, right. the, the, mm -hmm. the down payment assistance. And one of the things they do is, is rate buy downs. Okay. Uh, which, which to me, rate buy down. It's it's exactly what you would expect to see um, uh, in this sort of a yield environment. Lenders require a premium because they expect everyone to refinance in five years because of mm -hmm. the, the yield curve being inverted. Right. 
So lenders get a real premium for that. Effectively, what the builders mm. are doing by doing a rate price, by that, a lot of them are doing permanent, like like the full 30 year your loan is is a five and a half percent instead of seven and a half percent. They can do that because <clears throat> by giving the customer a, a five and a half percent um, uh, interest rate, <clears throat> they're effectively saying, I promise not to refinance. I've, I've already got the refinance rate. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's effectively a way for the hmm. for the borrower to promise to the lender that there's no prepayment risk on this loan. Um, you don't need that premium. So it actually creates sort of a win-win-win situation where the the you know if you just booked the mortgage based on the the, the present value of the future payments, the builder can actually pocket some gains. You know, the builder, mm-hmm. the buyer, and the the lender are all sort of sharing some of the gains. Of getting rid of that prepayment risk, so I think this is what we'll see for a while, is that the market rate price of those houses has to decline because we're coming off this weird period, this unprecedented period of, of um, constrained supply, and the builders are going to manage that period with incentives that include rate buy downs, mm-hmm. and so you know as everything normalizes, you're going to see existing home sales start to recover and all these incentives sort of minimize over time until the uh until we sort of inflate back into you know the the market price on these new homes inflates back into the the menu price and then we'll just mm-hmm. be um so we have this sort of period that we that that will still be normalizing but i my feeling is we're sort of looking at five or ten years of the most boring housing market for the home builders uh you know you could imagine because they're just going to be growing at the rate that capacity allows, um, mm-hmm. you know, selling the houses at a regular margin and just slowly co- closing the gap of, you know, the sort of the leftover effects of this brief period of uh, supply constraint. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So definitely not expecting, you know, something like a 20, 30 percent uh, drawdown in house prices at the moment. No, no. So, you know, that story I just told was sort of a story from the home builder's point of view mm-hmm. from the at the Substack where I'm looking at things from a macro point of view of like tracking existing home prices. Um, I what my what the tracker would tell you is that, you know, uh, since we since housing construction has been so low since the Great Recession, that all of these supply oriented mm-hmm. cost increases have been uh um uh you know on double time from say 2012 to 2019 now i actually think because i i think the fed has managed this the covid mm-hmm. period very well i'm a big fan of of jerome powell and um because he managed it so well we didn't have a housing bust associated with the covid recession construction mm-hmm. which is desperately needed basically continued to pace uh, a lot of people get confused by uh, because of this thing where we were just selling houses we couldn't even complete. There's a lot of movement in sales and starts. But if you look at completions, completions have just been a flat line uh, mm-hmm. for the last three, three or four years. And um, because of that, partly because of that, and partly because just slowly, finally, we were sort of getting production back up to some sustainable level that comes close to matching demand. I think it's possible that uh, that that excess rent inflation will will be reduced going forward, mm-hmm. um, and so 
so really, so if if the sort of supply component of home prices has been more or less level for the past, say, four years, basically what happened is we were semi-recessionary uh, when COVID hit. And, you know, mm. the Fed had sort of raised interest rates and they were chasing them back down because they'd gone a little bit too far. It's hard to say whether we would have had a recession without COVID or not. They would, they, they mm. were... They were sort of they were sort of running just ahead of the of the of the recession's sort of maw from 2018 yeah. to 2020. So maybe they would have escaped it, but certainly you can see the reflect the reflection of that in housing values. And I would say by by the time COVID hit, uh, I would say cyclically housing was probably 10% below neutral value. Um, so housing was very so there's been basically three components I follow the tracker. There's a, if you take the median house in the country, mm -hmm. uh, in the metropolitan areas, there's a 20% discount because of uh, uh, mortgage constraints, a 60% mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, inflation because of supply over time. And then the cyclical component that sort of moves like this over time uh, around neutral, that was maybe negative 10% by the time COVID hit. And then over that next 18 months or so, it it went back to neutral and maybe over uh, maybe the pendulum swing to swung to ten percent above neutral, um, mm -hmm. and that's already basically reversed and then leveled out. So we're basically, mm -hmm. I would say, the housing market now cyclically is sort of right at neutral and just going sort of. Um, it's the last couple of months it's sort of ticked up a notch, but I would say right now we're cyclic. There's there's no cyclical overvaluation in the American market mm -hmm. as a whole. Mm -hmm. um, there's, you know, obviously differences from city to city, mm -hmm. but um, I'd say we're cyclically neutral. And now we've got gunpowder, you know, we've, the builders are still building at the capacity they have. Um, and we're ready to have the building boom that's going to actually solve this housing cost issue. But I don't see any reason to expect uh, any cyclical reversal in home prices that you, that we should either encourage or expect or, um, yeah, it's, uh, you've got the this weird thing where the where the mm. home builders had this 15% premium that worked off in the new housing and now everything else is just nice and boring and let's just build a lot of houses and prices aren't going to go up or down much. Um and and we could be that way for, for a couple decades, frankly. So obviously good news for investors possibly, you know, and I definitely want to get into how maybe someone could uh, profit from the coming five, 10 years. But I, I wanted to get a little bit more into the Federal Reserve and interest rates because you know you have mentioned that the Federal Reserve has done a very good job of managing uh, the situation. A big fan of Jay Powell, you said. Now I was reading your recent post where you were talking about inflation, inflation being transitory, and the idea that uh, the Fed tightening hasn't really had anything to do with that kind of return to normalcy. So, yeah, I'd like to. First of all, if you could explain to that to us what that means and kind of uh, what your outlook is for for rates right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I would say it's a good example to me of how thinking of monetary policy through interest rate targets rots your brain because um, mm -hmm. because we're sitting in um, early two thousand two with with a run rate of you know eight or nine percent CPI inflation and actually the way I you know <clears throat> that. That headline CPI inflation included this uh, this garbage CPI rent shelter component, which, in addition to mm. the problems I discussed before, we know now you know it's been broadly discussed that it has a lag the way the survey works, so that 
the rent inflation the CPI is picking up now is based on these six month surveys about six month changes in rents mm -hmm. that really is picking up rent inflation from from a year ago. And so um, so in mid uh, 2022, the headline in CPI inflation is eight or nine percent. It's actually 14 or 15 percent if you take shelter out of it. Mm. And, and this shelter component is is not measuring anything useful at the time. It's it's last. Right. So the shelter component was still it was understated at the time because it's measuring rent from 2020 right. or 2021. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, you, you look, they started raising the target rate in March um, and slowly sort of raised it into June and then started doing the, the three quarter point um, raises after that. And it it amazes me that. It seems to be the conventional wisdom among macroeconomists that, oh, yeah, they 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 raised rates and that finally put it into the, you know, the transitory people were wrong because um, because, look, mm -hmm. they raised rates and and then the inflation went down. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm sorry, but there's no model in any macroeconomic textbook that's going to tell you that uh, one and a quarter percent target rate is going to bring down 10 10 or 50 percent inflation nobody mm. believes that can happen it's 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 an it's it's a ridiculous ad hoc explanation for what brought uh, uh, inflation down and there's no way that one and a quarter percent target rates now they'll so they'll bring in uh um uh, uh, ex, uh expectations well but the fed was signaling that they were going to keep raising at the time the peak the uh, expected interest rate was like three percent and i'm sorry Thinking the Fed's going to have three percent rates in two years is not going to bring down double-digit inflation. It's it's not the way mm -hmm. anyone has ever explained how it works. <laughs> inflation came down because inflation was transitory. Right. It was transitory for longer than we thought it would be because we had these second and third waves of COVID supply uh, constraints. That was probably most of it. A little bit is is the you know the the, the federal stimulus that was happening in 2021. Um, so you know all that stuff was bound to reverse now. If the thing with transitory inflation is if it's just a short burst, then you, let's say you've got a, a burst of eight, uh, uh, you know, a few months of 8% annualized inflation, and then it goes to negative three or 4% for a couple months, and that's all fine. You know, that, that sort of uh, supply related inflation, you know, that stuff's happening all the time within the aggregate. There's always things going up and down, and the Fed's not, you know, isn't supposed to react to every one of those. The Fed is reacting to this. To the broad sort of uh, quantity of money required to keep slow and stable growth. And the problem mm -hmm. is we had the supply thing that sort of hit everything all at once. Uh, and so, um, and then it hit, and then it stayed around for a year and a half. And so if that actually had reversed like transitory inflation would, by the time it was done, you'd be looking at a year's worth of 10% deflation and that would be horrible. So mm -hmm. I think the Fed would, my position is, yes, the Fed was loose, but their looseness had nothing to do with that inflation. And actually, mm -hmm. their looseness prevented us from having a, a, deflation. Um, yeah, a deflation that would have been problematic. Mm -hmm. So the Fed was when the Fed had the target rate at one and a quarter percent in June of 2022. And, and that was actually the last month with excess inflation. By July, in non-shelter inflation was that was less than the two percent target and it's been there it's been that way for the, the 17 months or however many months since then and because it was transitory inflation the fed had nothing to do with that because they 
didn't try to have anything to do with it, really. Um, they, they were relatively loose during that period of time. And, and thank goodness they were. And actually what ends up uh, causing them to need to raise rates is because they were so successful in, uh, in not doing away with inflation, they had no business do, you know, doing anything about the, the, real, the real expectations of the economy improved greatly. We had this huge, you know, this really just uh, large spike in long-term real in, uh, interest rates, mm-hmm. which ha- the, the Fed has no control over that. That's a sentiment. Right. That's, sen- that's sentiment improving, but mm-hmm. it's improving because they were loose. It's improving mm-hmm. because they didn't try to fix that inflation. It's and, and to the extent you can use interest rates targets to to describe monetary policy, of course they were loose. They had one and a half, one and a quarter percent target when on the last month when inflation was at double digits. And mm-hmm. and then so then you you basically switch to this period where they're chasing the real rate up. The neutral target rate is actually going up, and they're sort of marching up with it. Mm, right. Um, so again, it's this problem, you know, if you look at changing interest rates as if that's, you know, the, the, in, in, at all times, the Fed has sort of got a tiger by the tail. And what happens that they, they're getting whipped right and left and mm-hmm. people say, uh, sort of like the Wizard of Oz is another um, uh, sort of analogy I use from time to time. You know, they're sort of getting le- whipped left and right and everyone sort of uh, communicates with this mythology of, oh, look, they whipped the tail to the left. Now they whipped it to the right. And most of the time, they're chasing the neutral rate up and down, which is a rate we can't really ever divine. We have to guess at. And in the COVID period, it was really whipping up and down. And so mm-hmm. in late 2022, the real rate, long-term rates are, are, are shooting up by a couple percentage points. And they're, they're just following that up as inflation uh, dives back down to, neut- to the neutral target level. Then they're slowly becoming tightish because now now the interest rate now the target interest rate is above the running uh, inflation rate. Mm-hmm. Um, in a way, it almost doesn't matter that much. The, the you know the, uh, long-term real rates went up to you know three percent or something, and and the long end of the yield curve is is sort of bounced around that three to four percent level um, ever since then. <clears throat> At first, the Fed was below that, and over the course of uh, late 2022, you know, sort of moved up and then went past it. You know, so now the long end of the yield curve is still three or four percent, and the target rates at five and a quarter percent, which I think is way too tight. I think they could be at three, three and a half percent today, and and that would be better. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't know that it matters that much because the the people are lending as if they're going to be back at three and a half or four percent mm. within the next year or two. Nobody's building, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, semiconductor plants at, uh, you know, based on overnight repo rates. They're getting a ten percent mm. uh, or a ten-year bond for, you know, so so the right. the the important activity, mm. even mortgages, right? The important activity is taking place at rates that <clears throat> rates that are based on the expectation that the Fed will pretty quickly get back their target rate back to three or four percent. So I think they're way too high now. I don't think it matters that much, but I do think the faster they can mm. get down a percentage point or two, the better. Um, but you know, the economic news keeps coming in pretty, you know, 
again, I look at I I would measure their uh, their um, position based on nominal GDP trends. So I I think what happened is we had a nominal GDP collapse with COVID, and we had you know then you're catching up to the trend, um, and so I use a five percent trend. Mm-hmm. Most of that time, mm-hmm. where G- where nominal GDP growth was in the uh, you know very high, it was in the double digits. It was just catching back up to that trend after COVID, and they really have very nicely just sort of glided back into that five percent path. We're a couple percentage points above what I would would consider the so so effectively, the Fed was loose, but it was catch up loose, right? It was mm-hmm. it was getting right, it, 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 and they've been just sort of glide pathing us, you know, pretty close to that. Five percent in in GDP growth, which is basically you know there's a lot of noise in that from quarter to quarter, but the last few quarters that's basically where we are. We're five ish percent if you average a few quarters, and I think that's where we'll continue to be. Um, if they if they tried to stay at five and a quarter too long, they'll eventually slow us down too much, and there's really no reason for that. Um, but I think they'll. I, I think probably <clears throat> Powell will get them moving to a lower rate earlier than what the futures markets currently say, because he's, I think it's significant signs of slowing Hill. You know, he's, he's, he's been very, to me, very proactive in terms of getting ahead of the trends. So mm-hmm. sort of like <clears throat> if COVID hadn't hit 2020 might've been the first time since World War II. Well, maybe not the first time they probably avoided a recession in the mid nineties, but um, you know, it, it would have been a rare case of the fed sort of, you know, getting ahead of the tiger's tail enough to avoid recession by lowering interest rates fast enough. I don't know if they would have or not, but at least he he was giving it a go. He was certainly doing better than they did in 2008. Um, And so I think he'll, that, that'll be his instinct again. And, um, uh, you know, I, I think the yield, the yield curve from 2025 onward now is basically the the neutral interest rate for a 5% growth economy that could just go like that indefinitely if we you know if we um mm-hmm. let it um and and part of that is that you've got all this pent-up demand you know this housing market which is a leading indicator a very important cyclical indicator there's just so much dry powder in that market because of the supply problem that it it would be very hard to undermine housing in in a way that in a typical recession would lead to collapsing starts and all that that would that would be mm-hmm. leading and it would it'd be very hard to mismanage things badly enough to get uh, housing starts to uh, uh, decline in a way that would be recessionary. So in a way, I think sort of the job in front of them is sort of easier than normal because mm-hmm. of all the mistakes that got us to where we are. <laughs> but also mm-hmm. because I think Jay Powell's been pretty, you know, has, has been pretty mm. proactive about um, not letting things get in front of him. Very interesting. So, of course, you say that the Fed did well to be loose in those months, kind of uh, ahead of the um, disinflation. And then you mentioned that obviously the tightening hasn't had that much effect, right? So, really, what was what, in your opinion, was leading the tightening? Then it's just a matter of the Fed, like you said, kind of chasing that natural rate rather than really, or maybe managing expectations rather than really thinking that that tightening, uh, increasing the interest rates was having an effect on inflation. It's just a matter of like chasing that natural rate that you mentioned. Yeah, exactly. I, I think, uh, you know, I think it's been, I don't know if they'll ever get credit for it. I think it's been a, a major coup 
hmm. that they got long-term real interest rates to go up so much in the midst of all this that was happening with the aftermath of COVID. Um, low long-term real interest rates have been our problem for the last 15 or 20 years. Uh, and, but again, hmm. you know, if you, if you, if you treat that as a symptom of loose monetary policy, I think that just leads to confusion. Uh, that's mm-hmm. the low long-term real interest rates are actually mostly a reflection of past type policy, uh, a, a, which then sort of builds up to you know higher expectations of recession, lower mm-hmm. just lower expectations of economic growth in general, uh, because people are ba- basically investing in safe things in, instead of investing in growth and innovation. Um, uh, and so, you know, really, to me, the the, the long term real interest rate is more of an f- effect than a cause. Um, you know, it's basically showing you the sentiment people mm-hmm. have about future growth expectations. Right. And so. So, uh, uh, you know, it's very common for um, to see, um, you know, complaints about low interest rates and that that, you know, supposedly uh, inflates the housing market and all this. I, I don't buy into all that, but I do think we want interest rates to be higher, but they're going to have to be higher because of sentiment. It has nothing to do with short-term Fed policy. Mm-hmm. And for, for uh, in the confusion of the COVID period, for Powell to have uh, allowed that to happen, to basically reverse 20 years of declining long-term mm-hmm. real interest rates was a huge, huge victory. Um, and so, you know, it's great that mortgage rates are back up to where they are. Like that's the sign of an economy that uh, that requires a high, uh, um, uh, you know, that that for fixed income requires a high premium because people are more interested in in investing mm-hmm. in at risk activities and innovative activities, um, and and so it, it's all for the good. And and you know, it, it, to me, it's sort of funny. A lot of people have been complaining about low interest rates, uh, you know, the Fed, the Fed, the, you know, blaming the Fed for mm-hmm. low interest rates for 15 years. Well, we got what you, what everybody wanted, what they were complaining right. about. Now, now rates are back where everyone said they wanted them and they're still not happy. Right? <laughs> now they, now they're all saying, oh, now a recession is going to happen because rates are high. Well, you know, what do you want? You know, <laughs> Powell yeah, gave you, he's given you everything, you know, and <laughs> I hope someday he gets the credit for it. <laughs> that's, that, that's a that's a very good point you know and i guess fear sells you know people are always are uh, looking for the other shoe to drop but in terms of yeah. long-term interest rates though what do you think is moving the needle there how did we manage to pick up those long-term interest rates because um you know there's a lot of people talking about the idea that you know obviously that you know long-term rates have gone up because of um you know lack of demand for example for u.s treasuries which um, but you're talking more about the idea of uh, growth and inflation expectations. What, what, in your opinion, is moving those long-term interest mm-hmm. rates? Yeah, I just think it's, um, you know, I think one of the ma- main factors, uh, you know, that sort of correlates with with real long-term interest rates <clears throat> is just uh, is sentiment about growth that, you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, re- real growth tends to be pretty, you know, Pretty well correlated with uh, with real uh, long term interest rates, mm-hmm. and and uh, you know I think there's a causation that goes both ways that that when interest rates are high, it's a sign that that investors are are preferring ri- at risk investments over fixed income, and then those at risk investments create the growth that justifies those high interest rates. You know, it's a very I think it's a very complicated dance. 
that mm-hmm. interest rates and, and economic activity uh, have. Um, and I, I think it's one of those things that we can see those correlations over time and you, you sort of, we can understand that there is a relationship there. Uh, it's, it's, because it's all based on uh, on sort of sentiment and these emergent phenomena, it's hard to say, oh, here's what you need to do to make to make uh, make growth high and make those the you know make those long term interest rates reflect that. And so, to me, the, the fact that we managed to do it here, um, you know, we we uh, you know should really want to hold on to that. I and with regard to housing specifically, I I also just think you know I. I came into this whole period. If I go back and look at something I wrote ten years ago, I was I was doing the the conventional thing of of like original before I got into that project I was telling you about in 2015 that led me to where I am now. Um, I was sort of a, a housing bubble skeptic in a way, but with the conventional, um, you know, I would say, well, int- long term real interest rates are low and that can explain why home prices are elevated uh, mm-hmm. because you know you do a cash uh, a discounted cash flow analysis and you can you can right. make those those low real interest rates tell you that story um as, uh, since then I've discovered that was entirely wrong when you get into the the meat and potatoes of the housing market it's a it's a local phenomenon there there's all this other stuff that um that actually explains why the aggregate values are what they are. Um, and and so actually over time, as I've developed this model of looking at how supply shortages create all these asymmetrical uh, trends in prices, um, I've sort of lost uh, uh, the way I look at, at it now. I try to find an effect of, more, uh, of interest rates on housing home values, and I just can't find it. I would love to use it as a control variable so that people will take it seriously. Uh, and... And the, when I try to use a, a, a mortgage rates or long-term real interest rates or whatever as a control variable in 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 the components of the housing market that I have now developed, mm-hmm. I just can't find where there's any interaction at all. Mm-hmm. Um, now it, it's more complicated than that. There there are obviously ways that interest rates affect transactions and 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 frictions in the marketplace and stuff. But in terms of just the valuation of homes in the aggregate. I just can't find it. So, so I don't worry that much about uh, the effect mortgage rates are going to have on new home um, markets going forward. But I certainly would, if anything, reverse the conventional wisdom. It it just it just is never the case. If you just look historically at how housing markets play out, um, they don't uh, inflate when interest rates are low and deflate when interest rates are high. They just doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. It's, it really hasn't. Maybe, maybe there's a short period in the late 70s, you know, the Vol- in the Volcker recession where you can see that sort of um, uh, relationship for a brief period of time 45 years ago. Um, but since then, uh, interest rates go down when there's a recession and home prices don't, don't rise during a recession. The extreme example of this is that post-2008 period where home values collapsed at the same time that interest rates collapsed. So the the idea that interest rates have this negative correlation with home prices is very selective historical reading Mm. that I think, um, I just don't think you can justify it as a systematic relationship. Um, It's complicated, but but that 
relationship just as there. So I don't worry about mortgage rates and how, if anything, mortgage rates, high mortgage rates are going to be associated with an economic boom and a building boom going forward. And the last thing, if you're long on home builders or, or you know, uh, uh, have exposure to the housing market at all, the last thing you want to see is mortgage rates back at 3%, because I promise that's not going to be associated with good things happening. Mm-hmm. Right. Very interesting. So the way you see it, barring some kind of uh, exogenous uh, kind of event or, you know, unless Powell keeps us at 6% for the next five years, you're basically predicting kind of a stable era of growth, stable growth, stable inflation then. You just expect inflation to remain kind of around the Fed target over the next few years as well? Yeah, I think so. Uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens over the next year or two, um, because I think probably at this point now the Fed has been tightish and we might mm-hmm. see uh, headline inflation below target for a little bit. And and because they managed it so well and we didn't see a dip in housing completions and and I expect um home building activity to continue to grow as as capacity grows um we may finally see an end to this decades long um rent inflation uh excess and so you know really i mean you know you if you look back uh, the post great recession period you know we were sort of close to a 2% inflation uh, trend uh, in the with the aggregate numbers over that decade, but if you take if, again, if you take out the shelter component, uh, you, you know you're talking maybe a one percent trend. We we were actually well below uh, trend for basically that entire period. And to me, I I think you should think of it as there's inflation involved uh, with money supply and with productive activities. Mm-hmm. But rent inflation is really just uh, giving a little extra uh, of our productive activity to the rentier class, you know, to the owners of this endowment, which is land that they're restricting usage of through urban land regulation, land use regulation. I, I think it's actually a misnomer to to call that inflation. We're actually mm. just we're paying the troll under the bridge a little more each year. It has nothing to do with all the stuff that really. Right is a part of what money supply and, and productive activity mm-hmm. is. Um, that finally may be le- uh, leveling out. And so actually, I think it may be interesting over the next few years if shelter inflation finally is below target. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of the indicators in the, you know, in the apartment tracking services and stuff, they're showing you know, pretty level rents. Uh, if that can be the case, then, you know, Basically, for the last 20 years, people have been demanding too tight monetary policy because the rent inflation was making it look looser than it is. Well, maybe now that's not the case anymore. And maybe the Fed will be able to be a little uh, a let everything else grow a little more because they're not being misdirected by excess mm-hmm. rent inflation. Uh, so I think there's a lot of potential for really a sort of boom period and and real and nominal growth. Uh, above the levels we've seen in the actual real economy compared to the last 20 years that, that I think there's a lot to be hopeful about. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and just in general, I think it will be easier for the Fed to manage those targets um, in a context where it seems as though, you know, uh, 
uh, you know, all these housing issues are sort of have some tailwinds behind them. Mm -hmm. Well, definitely a very positive note for investors. And now in terms of actually gaining exposure, exposure to this kind of boom period, now you've talked a lot about home builders, which I assume uh, you, you're quite uh, uh, bullish on. Any other assets, first of all, within uh, real estate, so obviously a lot of uh, people looking at rates, I mean, mm -hmm. or maybe if investors can, should they just go out and get a mortgage and buy a house? And also <laughs> any other assets uh, in terms of maybe like stocks or other financial mm -hmm. assets that you think are a good investment right now? Mm -hmm. um, I, I mean, I... Uh... I would say that always you in terms of being in terms of owner occupier home ownership you that decision basically always comes down to are you going to be in the house for longer than 5 years or something mm -hmm. it's it's very transaction cost uh um um generated decision so so I would just say don't think cyclically about that if you right. if you if you're going to live somewhere for a while buy the house and don't worry about it you you probably aren't going to get have a half million dollars of capital gains when you sell it in 20 years but but in the meantime you're going to be getting an extra you know percent extra return on your investment because you because you got to be a landlord with the best tenant any landlord has ever had uh, that always right. agreed with every decision they made <laughs> um and which is the really the value of home ownership um you know for uh in in terms of investment um you know that there are potential pluses and minuses if we are going into a period where rent inflation uh, trends are changing. I think you have to be very careful about. Um, uh, you know, you have to really get into the details of any if you're looking at buying REITs or multi-unit mm -hmm. uh, uh, private equity, that sort of thing. I'm sure that there are uh, there will be good investments, probably the devils in the details in all those um, mm -hmm. um, areas. Um, I would say in terms of interest rate, potential interest rate plays, to me, it's just watching, you know, watching the Fed. And if they um, if if they're too sticky, if they refuse to come down um, uh, fast enough from five and a quarter, eventually the entire yield curve is going to drop. And that would be where the speculative play would be is if you could see that that was happening you know, there there tends to be a momentum in those play. You know, the the Fed tends to be rates tend to go up faster than expectations uh, for a while, and 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 when they are, they keep doing it for a while, and then they reverse, and they and so there tends to be some. You know, I think there's potential if you've got some foresight as to oh they're going to be behind the eight ball on this. You could you could go long on some mm. some interest rate uh, futures. But again, that's 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 a call you've got to make in real time. I don't think we're certainly not there now. Yeah. Um, I do think the, the home builders in general are the sort of no-brainer position mm -hmm. here. Um, and effectively, um, I, I in a way, I think you could say it's a situation where you're actually looking for low quality because... Um, because it's it's the cyclical fear. I think the cyclical fears are overblown, mm -hmm. and so the the most leveraged, uh, you know, the the home mm -hmm. builders that were sort of uh, the closest to failure before mm -hmm. the before the 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 new housing boom finally sort of pulled them up above the above the surface. Um, 
are the ones that still sort of lack the reputational value. Uh, you know, they mm. still haven't been fully priced in uh, to a to a boom valuation. Uh, in, in general, I like to, it's a very broad um, uh, benchmark, but I, I like to just, as a as sort of a broad brush, just look for like a, a, a enterprise value. Um, at some point during the cycle, the home builders will tend to have uh, enterprise value higher than their revenue uh, level. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and which is which is sort of a sloppy metric, but I think there's a I think you could talk your way into a justification for it on the specifics. Um, but I think that's a nice broad brush uh, sort of way to look at which home builders mm -hmm. have the most potential. And I think all the home builders have growth potential because we're at a construct uh, an activity level now that we definitely could go twenty or thirty or fifty percent higher in terms of annual production. And mm. still be still have a <clears throat> we've got years of production of you know a million and a half two million units a year uh, to make up for all, all the all the uh, supply that we could easily um, utilize. Um, the the, the I, I mean we if builders built five million units uh, today and then not, not a single one of them sold and they were all just set vacant we would actually be closer to normal than we are today because normally there's 5 million more vacant units than we have today. Um, really? So we need to build 500, 5 million empty empty units. Forget about household uh, um, formation and all the other things that, that need to catch up or you know uh, the high rents of, of the uh, expensive cities and, and all that. We need 5 million empty units just to be normal. Um, mm -hmm. And so, um, uh, um, so anyway, even the even the sort of the the D eight uh, you know D R Hortons and the, and and the Lenars and the Pulteys, the sort of leading mm -hmm. home builders, they are probably you know if you look at today's revenues, they 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 might be pretty close to that uh, enterprise value equal to revenue sort of. Um, uh, I would consider that sort of they can get above that, but that's sort of the the the, the bottom of the range you'd expect them to get to eventually over a cycle. But they they're all probably looking at you know fifty percent growth over the next decade as we mm -hmm. work our way into this building boom. But some of the more leveraged builders, um, a because of the leverage, uh, uh, and b just because they they are going to continue to grow their their revenue base have a lot more potential for um, stock uh, appreciation. Hope Mannion is probably by far the the most potential for, um, I, you know, I, they're, they're trading it. I haven't looked at today, but something around $90 a share. And I think they're uh, easily could get, uh, you know, four or five, $600 by the time the, the boom plays mm -hmm. out. Um, Beezer's another one that, you know, is still somewhat undervalued, partly because of the leverage. Um, uh, uh, MI Homes, which I think trades as MHO, is another one that I think probably has more upside than the typical builder. But really, to me, what you're looking mm -hmm. for is builders that are still that are actually still trying to regrow back into their mm -hmm. operational and financial uh, leverage uh, because yeah. they're they're still affected mm -hmm. by the 2008 collapse. Um, and so, in a way, uh, when you've got the tailwinds, go for the low 
low quality that, that right. still has room, mm-hmm. still has room for evaluation recovery. I right. mean, Health yeah. Nanny, Health Nanny, and like I said, they're trading at ninety. They were at like six to eight dollars a share bef- uh, mm-hmm. back in the summer of two thousand nineteen because they were uh, going. Uh, they, they, there was a bankruptcy risk early at the time. They got mm-hmm. a delisting notice back then for right. valuation being too low for the stock market. And so with them, I think you're you, you, all these things are sort of adding up. They can they can pay off debt. They, they're going to regrow into their operational. Um, mm-hmm. footprint they're going to pay off high interest rate debt um, and you're getting this this uh, transition from valuing them on a going concern risk basis to valuing them as a as just another home builder um, mm-hmm. and all these things just multiply on each other when you get down into those builders mm-hmm. yeah that that actually makes a lot of sense it's a very good way of thinking about it so there you have it i think some very keen insights there i think that the listeners will definitely appreciate uh, where can we find people on the internet to find you and what can they expect to find? Oh, where, where can they find me? Is that what you said? Yes. Uh, at Twitter, I'm K, K-A Erdman uh, with two N's. K-A-E-R-D-M-A-N-N uh, is, is my Twitter handle. Um, that's where I tend to do my, uh, you know, my hot takes <laughs> um, and, uh, and, you know, interact and see what, you know, find what people are talking about. And then again, the Substack is the Erdman Housing Tracker. Um, KevinErdman.substack.com uh, is where I do uh, do all my writing these days. It, occasionally, I, I, I've got a paper I'm trying to finish. I am still an affiliated scholar with Mercatus, and I've got several papers. You can go to Mercatus.org um, and see some of the papers I've I've put out in the last couple of years. And there should be another one coming out over the next few months if I can get off my butt and get the edits done on it. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, then again, just all sort of build this model of how to mm-hmm. think about um, home housing valuations and how supply uh, uh, is is the core element creating all this this valuation inflation. Absolutely, definitely some very interesting ideas there on the Substack. And just want to say, Kevin, uh, really appreciate you taking the time to uh, to do this. Uh, really enjoyed the conversation, and uh, hope we can do this again sometime. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime. It's been a pleasure. Awesome. Thanks for coming on. Bye-bye, everyone.